Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this tremendous privilege, this opportunity to gather together as family in the unity of the faith. Father, thank you so much for giving us the gospel, the gospel of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to just revel in, to bask in, to enjoy, to find peace in and also to spread as part of the great commission that he, the owner of said gospel, gave us. Father, what a privilege it is to receive your grace, your mercy, and your love in time so that we can go about this business for you and bring glory to you in time. Father, of course, as always, we pray for those members of the congregation that earnestly desire to be here but cannot be for a variety of reasons. We pray that they know that we're with them in spirit and that we're thinking about them always and we're praying they get to come back to the fold sometime soon. We pray for those also that are still lost in this world, Father, and that we might give them the, the gospel so that we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this even a reality. May we never become familiar with such things. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this message title, Continuation, obviously part 66 of why the apostles so encouraging by grace they were prepared. Again, the uh, impetus for all of this, the reason for all of this is that we are to garner some form of encouragement um, from the individuals, the individuals that are recorded in ancient scripture. Um, and what we're realizing, hopefully for all of you, it certainly is the case with me, is that these were just, for lack of better term, I don't want to call them regular folk because God chose them, uh, making them not so regular, but in terms of their personalities and their capabilities, they were just regular people. Uh, the greatest thing they had going for them, which is the greatest thing that any of us can have going for us in time, is humility. They lacked some. We, we've learned this, we've seen this in Scripture, but just the same, they had enough, um, I guess you could say, for Jesus to work with. And so there's a whole lot of education that went on um, between Jesus and these uh, said apostles that we have uh, garnered so much encouragement from. And so we're going to continue that again this evening. Um, great recap. Thank you, Scott, on Tuesday. Uh, from Sunday's lesson. I got a lot of feedback from Sunday's lesson that uh, people are just really touched. I had one person tell me they listened to the lesson three times before uh, the end of, I think it was Monday. Uh, it was just that um, important to that person, and uh, they weren't alone. So I, I, my shepherd-like reminder is that I sure do hope that members of this congregation take advantage of every possible opportunity to hear the Word of God as it is preached from this pulpit. Um, there's a reason why David's back there. We have a whole AV room why we record every lesson. It's, if you can't make it here, uh, then you have the opportunity to listen to it in your own time. 
And like I said, some people listen to these lessons multiple times. So as I've stated many times in the past, there's uh, an F-bomb in the spiritual life. That's much more heinous than any four-letter word you just thought of. Do you know what it is? I mean, when I say heinous, I mean dastardly, cripplingly, undermining, and just plain ugly. Do you know what I'm talking about? We all suffer from it, especially when life begins to increase in complexity or our eyes begin turning back towards self and its incomparable lust for more, more, and even more. Let me take you one step closer before I give you the, what the F-bomb is. The inevitable truth. The flesh is forever implacable. It means it cannot be satisfied. It's never satisfied. Um, there's scripture that talks about this. You know, the things you own end up owning you. Um, you, want, you have and you want more. The flesh is forever implacable. It breeds malcontent by never being satisfied with the grace of God. That sounds ridiculous, but that's exactly what the flesh is like. It's a greedy little bugger, and it just wants more and more, and it's never satisfied. I mean, anybody in here, I always think of this one thing, this basic part of life. Anybody in here breathing in pain? Have you gotten familiar? Oh, I let the F-bomb out. <laughs> so this, let's pretend it's still a secret. This is what breeds contempt. Of course, the spiritual F-bomb is familiarity. It's worse than any swear word you could possibly dream up. It's way more heinous and more crippling. And it's the reason why a lot of people grow sort of weary and lax and there's a whole host of things. A bunch of what we would call spiritual diseases that are the result of this thing called familiarity. At its most fundamental level, here's what the Bible teaches us about this concept of familiarity. It's a plague. Life is a miracle that we are way too familiar with. That's why, I mean, you don't live if you don't breathe, right? And if you're breathing and you have the privilege of breathing without any pain or suffering, then um, you have something to be grateful for. But it's so darn easy to become familiar with all the little things. One big thing is that life is a miracle and that we do become familiar with it. We take things for granted, losing sight of the fact that life abounds all around us. And Scott talked about this on Tuesday. Look around. Look at the birds. Look at the bunny rabbits. Look at the, I mean, even the insects. You know, look at, I have a camera now that takes really close pictures. And it's phenomenal. There's a whole nother world, microscopic world. And God's got it all under control. It's unbelievable, and we just step on it, frankly. I mean, I'm, talk I'm talking, I stop in my front yard and bend over, and I'm on my belly taking a picture of a blade of grass, and there's an aphid on it or an ant or something like that. Normally, what do we do? We just step on it, and we move on. We don't even think about it. 
We trample so many things in our lives. I think it's fair to say that we become familiar with so much of God's grace. So here's an example for you. When's the last time you read the following passage and really took the time to step, step back and be, frankly, blown away by it? Go to 1 Peter 3.18. 1 Peter 3.18. You know, I, and I'm not going to lie. I mean, I get guilty of this quite often, and I sort of shun myself, and I, I get angry with myself because I get familiar with passages. I get familiar with the Bible. I'm a pastor, right? How the heck does the one guy get, how do I get familiar with the Bible? Easy. The same way you do. I read it, I skim over, I'm like, yeah, I've read that a hundred times. So when's the last time you let this particular one verse blow you away? 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all. How about that alone? The just for the unjust. How about that? The fact that he was blameless and innocent, and none of us were, or are. So that he might bring us to God. So he had great purpose. How about that? He humbled himself. He was God. And he came, became a man. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Yee. When's the last time you were blown away by that? When's the last time you allowed yourself to step back and be blown away by that. And that's one verse in the Bible. Again, up here on the board, familiarity is plague. Life is a miracle that we are way too familiar with. We take things for granted, losing sight of the fact that life abounds all around us up here on the board. For example, when's the last time you read the likes of 1 Peter 3.18 and really took the time to step back and be blown away by it? Some of you are like, ah, that was the first time I read it. <laughs> Which is fine, because everybody has a first time. This isn't about uh, guilt or condemnation. Uh, if you're here now and you're, you're listening and you're reading your Bible, you just started, great. As the Spirit's been reiterating to us as of late up here on the board, only God has the power to save man. When's the last time you let that seep into your soul? Only God has the power to save man. What does that leave man then? We're hopeless without him. We're helpless, literally hopeless. Ships out at sea, no way back, no beacon, no nothing without him. Lost. Again, man does not save man, not himself nor others, by doing this or that. And the Spirit hasn't been shy about calling out certain religions, even, by name, from this pulpit over the past week. So be it. It's not a regular pra practice for us, but so be it. I have no reason to apologize for it. If something's wrong, it's wrong. Remember, as I've taught you in the past up here on the board, the truth never changes just because a person denies it. You can deny truth all you want. You can pick up your Bible and read it and say, I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. But that doesn't change the truth. The truth never changes. It's immutable. So says the Bible. For example, there are whole so-called Christian religions, and I say Christian like this, 
Christian religions out there that either do not understand or flat out reject the idea of being born again. They either reject it or just flat out don't understand it. This is in the face of Holy Scripture. Jesus' own words, nonetheless. Pastor Ed didn't say that. Jesus said, you must be born again. Do not be confused about this. It seems like an audacious thing to posture oneself on, but it isn't for someone who doesn't take the time to seek the truth. It seems obnoxious, even. But it's not to a person who doesn't know the Bible. For example, if your religion supposes that salvation is something that occurs at the end of your life, you know, with fingers crossed, you go your whole life, you're like, oh, man. Someone says, you're going to heaven or what? I sure hope I was good enough. If that's your religion, then you don't understand what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus in John 3. You don't understand what it means to be born again. In fact, if we are to carry out the logic of their misguided doctrines, we'd end up in the same place every time. Where? That salvation must be something that occurs at the end of life. Not when a person believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know the truth. The truth is when you believe, you're saved right then and there. And from there on, you're saved. And you were born again and made new. You don't have to worry about the end of your life. Gee, I hope I was good enough. The cross was good enough. Jesus Christ was sufficient. That's the whole point. This is why so many people in our own geographic location are what can only be called miserably insecure, lost, so-called Christians. That's why. They don't even know if they're saved. I mean, imagine living life like that. Imagine if... If God came down, this would never happen, but imagine for a moment if God came down right now and you know if you're saved, you're saved. God the Holy Spirit revealed it to you. Uh, if he came down and said, you know what, I changed my mind. Maybe you will be, maybe you won't. It's going to be fun to find out, ain't it? We'll have to wait until you're like Bill's age, you know, when it's time to, you know, die physically. How would that make you feel? How, how would your life become? You'd be an insecure, miserable wretch because you had no idea. It sounds cruel, doesn't it? Well, that's religion. Religion's cruel. That's why there's a lot of people that are miserable Christians. When I quote my fingers like that, that means they're just professing to be believers. Again, this is why so many people in our own location are miserable. It's because they don't have the faith that a true believer in Christ has, or more specifically, the truth that sets a person free, which is that a believer in Christ is a new creature, as the Bible teaches us. This is not uh, some obscure doctrine. It's right there in black and white all over the New Testament. You're a new creature if you're saved. And that happens when you're saved. So if we just put ourselves in their shoes for a moment, and some of us just need to think back on our own lives, like Scott was telling us on Tuesday in his situation. We can understand why they are the way they are. Of course you're going to be insecure and miserable and, and, and always searching for something. Because you're not, you have no hope. You don't have that living hope that the Bible talks about. 
so we can understand why they are the way they are. Think about their situation up here, up here on the board, just to sort of net it out. Living in fear, not freedom. It's an awful thing. Just put yourself in this perspective for a moment. It's an awful thing to think that the God who supposedly saves you isn't interested in giving you the assurance of such a thing. He goes, I'll save you, but I'm not going to tell you whether or not it's real <laughs> until the end of your life. I'm going to leave you in this state of insecurity. I'm going to keep you guessing. That's not God. I mean, there's so many implications beyond just that simple statement, but that's not how he operates. So it's an awful thing to think that the God who supposedly saves you isn't interested in giving you the assurance of such a thing, yet that is precisely how most so-called Christians live. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Of course I do. I'm a Christian, remember? So how about your salvation? I'm hoping. That's a different Christ from a different spirit. Then, That's not my gospel. That's not my God. That's the God of this world who's got you tied up in knots. That's why the very conversation about eternal life and heaven and hell and these kinds of things bothers you to the core. It's because you don't know. It's because you've been believed, you've been deceived into believing a false gospel. God's not like that. We noted the following this past week up here on the board, the miracle of rebirth. Why does a religious, quote, Christian not understand the concept of being born again when it is something that Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, for example? The answer, human rationalism is not true faith. What did Nicodemus say? What did we see when we looked at Nicodemus? He said, what am I going to do, go back into my mother's womb? I mean, how's, a man how's an old man going to be born again? This sounds ridiculous. Yeah, human rationalism says just that. I think you're missing the point. We're talking about spiritual rebirth, supernatural rebirth, being regenerated, being made a new creature in Christ Jesus. These are not things we're not going to be... Uh, uh, we're not going to be able to understand those things unless we're also given supernatural understanding to understand them. And who can, who's the only person that can do that? God. A religious, quote, Christian does not possess the faith necessary to believe that the Bible is the word of God even. Otherwise, they'd have to believe all of it, not just the parts that they like. And as you'll see... Uh, in this week's blog, it will come out on Saturday, titled, The Bible is God's Testimony. What people like to do is what every unbeliever does. This is the amazing thing about these so-called Christians. They do what unbelievers do. They dismiss the Bible as inspired by God's Spirit. They proclaim that it is merely penned by, you know, a few good men. And once let's call it loosed, because we know that we are under the authority of this book, the very Word of God. But if you're able to kind of cast it off, then you are now loose from the absolute bonds of our true Master. They are free, these individuals, to invent and speculate all that they want about just about anything they want, let's face it. If you can stop picking and choosing what parts of the Bible are true and what, what are not true, then what, where's, where's the line? Who gets to decide? Well, I guess it's free reign then, isn't it? 
I was reflecting on this. Um, I was having a conversation this past week with someone, and we were discussing the following. Loose from sovereignty. I'm supposed to say sovereignty, not whatever else that says. Severity. A person... (laughs) A person who dismisses the Bible as the very word of God is then able to supplant God with themselves. In other words, if this isn't the final authority, then who is? If this isn't God's own testimony, then who is? Oh, I guess I'll decide. You can have your version of God, and I can have mine. No. There's only one holy God of the universe, and it's the same one whose spirit inspired this, who's also called the Spirit of Christ. So as a person or a person who dismisses the Bible as the very word of God is then able to supplant God with themselves. After all, if the Bible isn't God's word, then where can one find it? In other words, what's God trying to say to you then? There's a, I taught on existentialism, big fancy word just means that God is who we experience him to be as we grow and live and you know by the end of it you have your god and i have mine and you know you might be a buddhist and i might be a muslim and and then the big the big lie is that all these gods you know they're the same god garbage so don't you understand that this is the very fabric of every errant religion ever conceived by man the very first step is to separate you from this, from the truth. That's the very first step. To separate you from the truth. Because now there's no authority in your life. There's no final say. Because this has everything to say about what salvation is and what the true gospel is. But if you ignore it, dismiss it, don't read it, then it's up to you. But that is the very fabric and often the very first step of every errant religion ever conceived by man. And you're looking at the issue right there on the board. It looses a person. A person gets loosed from the sovereignty of God. If a person refuses the Bible as the inspired word of God, there's absolutely nothing left to talk about, is there? Those are those hard conversations. I know some of you that probably go out and evangelize on the street and what have you. If a person doesn't believe that this is the word of God, it's a really difficult conversation to have. It's not impossible because with God, all things are possible. They could hear the gospel and be like, that's what I was waiting for. (laughs) And they're saved. And it's all good. But if they have an attitude about the Bible or they think that it's just, you know, written by mere men, not the inspired word of God, not the candidate, et cetera, et cetera, it's a hard conversation to have. That's why, again, as many of you will attest, trying to evangelize a lost, religious, so-called Christian is much more difficult than trying to evangelize an unbeliever without any prior affiliation with religion. Give me one of those any day of the week. Give me a religious person? If I had hair, I'd pull it out. I gotta stop pulling on this little thing. That's why I have it. For stressful evangelizing situations. Just kidding. (laughs) 
You know what I'm saying? It's way harder to evangelize a religious person that's still lost than it is an unbeliever who might be looking, who's humble. Because religious people aren't humble at all, are they? Some of you are smiling, right? Because you know, they're the least humble people. Nope, all set, got my religion, go away, you born-again Jesus freak, Bible-thumping baldy, right? Go away, I don't want to talk to you, I have my religion, I know, I'll be praying for you. You might ask, why would anyone denounce the Bible as the Word of God? The reasons are infinite, technically speaking, but one of the favorites that I've come across is that religious people tend to have a lopsided view of the sovereign God. They tend to have a lopsided view, and there's a variety of, of um, religions out there, but they'll, let's put it this way to oversimplify from what I've seen. They'll either fall into the love camp or the wrath camp, but never both. God is either so loving that he's got no justice. Some of them get so far they think that he just saves everybody, whether or not they believe in Jesus Christ. That's the extreme. Or he's all wrath. And he's just this damnable God just waiting to hammer you every moment of every day, just looking to, like, beat on you. And he's this, like, cold-hearted, unloving God who's just trying to beat you. And that's what they And so everybody over here is scared out of their shorts. And these people over here are singing Kumbaya, and they're both lost. That's what happens when you don't have a balanced God, when you don't understand the fullness of the sovereignty of God. In other words, as... Or a part of the holy God is offensive to them. That's what I see. They say, well, the loving people say, well, the wrath of God, I don't like it. It's offensive. And so they throw that part of the Bible out. Or they are sort of, uh, you know, those militant type people. And they say, well, the love of God's too gushy. We need, you know, we need structure. We need, you know, order. And, you know, it's like they, just, they, just get, they, they buy these big gavels and they just beat on people. Order, order in the court, you know, and that's, they're offended by the love. Something's offensive. So they denounce part of the Bible. And that allows them to remove certain truths about the sovereign God, the holy God of the universe, from the equation. But here's what the Bible says about that, the true God. God is both love and wrath. Neither facet is present in his essence without the other. Only the human flesh is offended by the wrath of God, for example. Only the human flesh is offended by the wrath of God, or even the love of God. I could have written that as well. But what we, we know to be true is that our God, the God of the universe, is both. As we heard on Tuesday evening, the sovereign God of the universe has the power to love you so much. Just put this into perspective. The sovereign God of the universe has the power, and he does, to love you so much that he'll save you. For God so loved the world, right? He'll save you. That's how much he loves you. It's his essence. It's who he is. He wants. I mean, that's what he wants. He wants everybody to be saved and come to the knowledge of him. That's scripture. But here's the thing. He's also the same God whom we fear because that same power can and will be wielded as wrath without apology towards sin. Sin is, a, is, un, is unbelievably, absolutely offensive to the holy God of the universe because 
He's, there's no sin in him. So it's, I was going to say ungodly, but it's, it's the strongest word I'm thinking of right now. It's, it's incredibly offensive to the holy God of the universe. So, of course, he has a wrathful response to it. But the point the Spirit's making on the power of God is that real power is never lopsided. He's fair. We know he's fair. We know he's just. He owns the balances. He owns the scales. He owns the weights. He's always, always balanced, whatever that means in, to him. Real power is never lopsided, though. This is why the right way to think about Jesus Christ, who is God, is as the lion and the lamb, not just one or the other. The lion and the lamb. So we've been pondering the power of God this past week, and plus something that Jesus spoke of implicitly when he spoke of his Father's will. Go to John 6.39. You know, not just the theology of the power of God exists, like in Romans 1.16, you know, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. But there's also a lot of illustrations in the Bible about the power of God being manifest. For example, in John 6, verse 39. John 6, 39. And I'm so happy. I don't know about you. I'm so happy that I have this in my soul. The, so the, the idea of the sovereign God of the universe in my soul, that it grounds me, that I need that in my life. Because if I was in charge of my life, I probably wouldn't be here. If I was in my charge of my life, I'd who knows? You guys might see me on the sidewalk somewhere. I don't know. Giving out roses, of course. What's wrong with you people? John 6.39. This is the will of him who sent me. Jesus speaking, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. This is an exercise with power. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. You think that's something you can give yourself? You think that's anything that any human being can give themselves, eternal life? You think that's something you can work for? You think that some religion that says, well, if you work hard enough throughout your life, you'll get saved at the end of it because you'll be justified and worthy of eternal life. You think that's really a, a viable, that's something that this supports? It's unbelievable. But that's exactly how most religions trap people because the flesh loves that treadmill. But this is real, Paul. This is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him We'll have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That's what real power looks like. And that is God's desire for everyone, that all are saved and come to the knowledge of truth. We know that not everyone's saved because we also are given free will. Deep down, God has created every human being in a condition that he can save them, if and only if they so desire to be saved. God is, check this, just think about this. Deep down, God has created every human being in a condition that He, God, can save them if and only if they desire to be saved. Think about that. 
God created every person. So that he didn't, he's never created one human being. Otherwise, he'd be unjust sentencing anybody to hell. He's never created a human being that he couldn't save. But he won't save them if they're not on board, if they say no to the gospel, if they reject the true gospel of Jesus Christ. He won't save them. Otherwise, they'd be a robot, right? They wouldn't have free will. He also would be unjust to sentence anybody that didn't have that opportunity. So we might say in practical terms, up here on the board, still holding on to power because that's where we're getting, that's our last principle, remember, in our overall working framework. We lack power. Deep down, all men know that they are weak compared to God. Everyone knows this. Even an unbeliever knows this. Their attempt to um, get out from underneath the power of God, the sovereignty of God, is to say he doesn't exist. It's almost like when you hear these kids, they say, I'm going to emancipate from my parents. And, and, and that would make them, they, that means they don't exist to me anymore. Uh, yeah. Whether you're on, in China and they're in Timbuktu, wherever that is, it doesn't matter. You know what? They're still your parents. doesn't matter what the law says. They're still your parents. Now, some of you are saying, yeah, but my parents sucked. So, guess what? Guess who gave you those parents? God did. Some of you, somehow, some way, by giving you crappy parents, you ended up here. Because you hit rock bottom. And you said, what, I got, somebody, Lord, help me. Deep down, all men know that they are weak compared to God. Salvation from sin and death reveals a miracle of God. It is a miracle. It's a stupendous miracle. It's a miracle that we become so familiar with that I'm ashamed of it sometimes. I'm ashamed. I almost feel like crying right now. I'm ashamed of the fact that I forget the gospel, how much he's done for me, how much he loved me, to die for me. To pay the price for my sins? That means he felt my sins on the cross? Yeah, he felt my personal sins on the cross. And he paid for all of them, past, present, and future. Have I become so familiar that I've forgotten these things, that I get up out of bed in the morning and go, what have you done for me lately? Put on my Janet Jackson CD. Have I? That's the, that is literally the pathway to misery. The very worst way to start a day. Talking about power. If you don't believe that God does miracles, such as making a person be born again, then you are rejecting his nature. A person who accepts his nature understands their utter powerlessness to save themselves. Hence, a wonderful principle from Tuesday's lesson on the topic of humility. You know, if you know, this is true humility. If you know that you cannot save yourself, that is the very start of humility. Humility is not, oh, shucks, you know, I'm such a, you know, I'm just not as good. And that's not true humility. True humility says, I really do suck. I'm completely depraved, and I need a, I need a savior. That's the start of it. That's what true humility looks like. A person 
A personal trust in Jesus Christ alone as one's Lord and Savior is the only way one can have peace with regards to his eternal destiny. Think about how we started, how the Spirit started this evening. Think about people who don't understand salvation because they're not saved. Think about people who don't understand what it means to be born again and saved. Where's their peace? They're, I guess they're waiting for it with anxiety. I really hope I'm good enough. I hope I make the bar. Jesus made the bar. That's the point. He says, my peace I give to you. Do you want it? A personal trust in Jesus Christ alone as one's Lord and Savior is the only way one can have peace with regards to his eternal destiny. Acts 16, 31, John 10, 27 to 30, 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. One other fantastic point the Spirit pointed out to me personally as I was listening to Tuesday's message up here on the board, and it was really came in from a different angle. I need you to listen up. It's going to take a little bit of a moment of concentration here. God breaks hearts. I was thinking about this. He's really good at it. He likes to do it. Not good hearts, bad hearts. Hearts that are inflated. Hearts that think they're born good. Hearts that think they were somehow intrinsically born well. Those hearts. He likes to break them. He likes to smash them. Matter of fact, he wants you to be heartbroken. He wants an unbeliever to be totally heartbroken. Over what? Over themselves. Over their dire circumstances. Over their powerlessness. Man, life is a heartbreak. Yeah, as long as you try to live in the power of the flesh, it is. Let me smash that a little more, he says. God breaks hearts. We are so sympathetic to, quote, broken hearts. I, I, this is the bummer. I don't wanna, I'm probably going to go on a, I'm gonna off a tangent here for a second. I'm not going to rant, though. I'm just so, you know, this, I'm just so sick and tired. If you're on, the only reason I'm on Facebook is to put, like, blogs out there and try to put scripture out there. It's the only reason I hate it. One of the reasons is, God, everybody's bleeding all over the place. It's just, my life is just so, you got, you got two types of people on Facebook, right? You got the people who post Photoshop pictures of them on vacation. You know what I'm saying? Their, their avatar, their life is perfect. You know, you get those people. And then you get the ones that's just bleeding everywhere all day long to anybody who will listen. And every so often, someone new, like they'll get new friends, and the new person's not on to them yet, so they'll fall prey to this broken heart thing. And I feel like choking them out. <laughs> Reaching through, you know what I'm saying? Like choke them out. I know, I'm weak. Because I don't want to hear about your broken heart. That's a good thing. God's trying to get you there, and then some other idiot is over there going, it's okay, let me lift you back up. No, don't lift them back up. This is good. Let them be broken. Let their heart be destroyed. Because then maybe, just maybe, that streak of arrogance that's been with them for 40 years, the one that's still on Facebook, bleeding all over everybody, looking for sympathy because, and looking for enablement and all that kind of garbage, maybe that'll be broken finally. And they'll hit rock bottom, and then they'll reach out to the Lord and be saved, and everybody will be good. But the flesh is so sympathetic to these so-called broken hearts. Just consider the number of songs written about the topic. 
God has no problem breaking man's heart, for his heart is wretched by nature. Think about that. God breaks hearts. I love it. I love it. It's what is one, remember about a month ago, what are we celebrating? Remember that whole thread? It's the same thing. What are we celebrating? Seriously, what are we, what are we actually celebrating in life? Achievement? Who cares? How do you even achieve in the first place? God. God gave you a brain. God gave you lungs. I don't know whatever the heck you're breathing or whatever you're achieving. Big deal. I don't know. Maybe you're breathing. Maybe that's an achievement for somebody someday. For some people it is. You're born in an incubator. My buddy's baby was smaller than his hand when he was born. For some people that is a big deal. But we're so sympathetic to these so-called broken hearts. Just consider the number of songs written about the topic. God has no problem breaking man's heart, for his heart is wretched by nature. The very best thing God can do for man is to break his heart. The very best thing God can do for man is to break his heart. While at face value that sounds awful, it's actually quite gracious. He loves you enough to tell you, what you really are, to show you over time that you're never going to make it without Him. So while at face value, again, that sounds awful, it's actually quite gracious. Up here on the board, God breaks hearts. A broken heart isn't always a bad thing. In fact, it's the first thing God does for an unbeliever in His salvation. Yeah. While the rest of the world... In many cases, your parents, your teachers, your, your uh, future college professors, if you go that route, your, your future bosses, your, your loved ones, all these people are trying to like mend your broken heart and God's keep trying to smash it down. Why? So that you'll actually get it. And these are the things we should be telling people when we're out there evangelizing people. This is what we should be telling people. Step back for a moment. What is it that you're chasing after? What's today's carrot? And what are we celebrating? Broken heart isn't always a bad thing. In fact, it's the first thing God does for an unbeliever in his salvation. With that said, we need to finish up. I've got about 15 minutes left. We need to finish up our work on the things that the apostles lacked. The past few weeks have had a lot to say about this power, particularly the power of the Word of God. And there were a pair of principles worth reiterating here that will get us situated to continue this labor up here on the board, how the gospel gets perverted. A person who doesn't understand salvation proper won't seek the Savior proper. Rather, they will seek a different Savior to a different problem statement. I don't need God's power. If it's a different problem statement, if I only need to get a little bit better, I can probably do that on my own so I don't need God. I don't need a Savior. That's a perverted gospel. The latter is how Satan deceives the world. He proposes a different problem statement. As we've seen in Scripture, the gospel is very often discarded as foolishness up here on the board. While the gospel is the very, quote, power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1.16, it is foolishness to those who are perishing, 1 Corinthians 1.18. Unsaved, professing Christians, that's right, they exist are the ones who reject what Jesus said about himself and his gospel. 1 John 2.23, up here on the board. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Confess means agree with. 
the one who agrees with the Son, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one gets to the Father but through me. The one who said that. said, don't be confused. You have to be born again. That same guy. If you don't believe that, if you reject him, then you don't get the Father, which means you don't get where he is. Heaven. That's how it goes. It's Jesus Christ alone. So let's read an excerpt from the chapter we read together on Thursday to amplify the point on the board. Go to 1 Corinthians 1.18. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. I'm going to go quick because we've already read this. There is no other way, and that's what we need to tell people. First, though, we need to tell them and remind them, or at least help them realize that they can't save themselves. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is foolishness. What's the word of the cross? That Jesus Christ had to die for us because we were incapable of solving the sin problem on our own, not powerful enough to deliver ourselves from the very throes of sin. That's the word of the cross. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Why? Because they think they're powerful enough, obviously. But to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. To us, it's everything. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Just to put things into perspective, go to verse 30. Verse 30. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Why? Because he's the only one powerful enough to deliver us. So we boast in him. A person who rejects that boasts in themselves. Why? Because they think they're powerful enough to deliver themselves. They're going to somehow climb to heaven. Either that or they're going to usurp God altogether and His power and His sovereignty and say He doesn't exist. I'm the God of my own universe. You know that, that poem, I always get it wrong. I'm, oh, captain, my captain. I'm the captain of my own ship. That whole thing. There's probably two different poems or something. I don't know. But I'm the captain of my own ship. You know what I'm talking about, that poem? Nobody? Jeremy, one guy? Oh, don't even. You guys don't know. You know what I'm saying? All this literature and all this so-called, um, you know, uh, this fine art that speaks about, you know, um, individuality and self-achievement and power and all this kind of stuff, it's all oriented to get people away from the truth. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with art or music or anything like that. I'm just saying you have to think how the God of this world will use those things so that people can boast in themselves. Look at this. I can play Eruption by Eddie Van Halen. Wow, aren't you special? What do you think about Jesus Christ? Who? 
I don't need him. Look at me. I can play eruption by Van Halen. I can, I can squat 650 pounds. Yeah, but you have to do like, you know, 65, 10 times. That was a joke for weightlifters. <laughs> Scott's like, oh, that's so funny. <laughs> it's all oriented to get people to, be, to get accustomed to boasting in themselves. And it's just a short stretch to say, well, if I can do all these things and everybody else around me thinks I'm a swell guy and fantastic and moving ahead and I'm top of the heap and I'm creme de la creme, well, what's the big deal? I'll just walk my way to heaven too. I'll climb my way to heaven too. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why? Because he's the only one powerful enough to solve that problem for us. Now, on Thursday, the Spirit gave us some additional things to think about regarding the power of the word up here on the board. Philippians 2.16, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. And we saw this, the word of life. Specifically, the Word of God speaks often of its own power. That's what I love about the Word of God. God doesn't hold back. He doesn't say, you know, well, maybe I am, and you decide what you think of me. He says, no, I'm absolute power. You are my slaves. I'm master, you're slave. Whether you like that terminology or not, I don't even care. That's the way it is. I'm the authority around here. I'm the sheriff in town. I'm the sovereign one. As a matter of fact, you know what? I created you, and you're clay. Is the clay going to say to the potter, why did you create me this way? The word of God speaks often of its own power and its abilities to sanctify whatever it is that God desires to set apart for his purposes. The practical side of sanctification that really got us thinking, I think this was from two weeks ago now, but hopefully you've been still chewing on it. In terms of sanctification, the very practical side, where you know a lot of people have big words and they study out commentaries and they have this theologian and that theologian that they can point to. Or so-and-so says sanctification is this, and it's stratified in these three different categories, and this, this one uses this language, and it's only two, and you know, is this over there, and it's a five, and who cares? Shut up. What the heck does sanctification mean to a normal person? Not some dork who's sitting behind a computer screen coming up with new multisyllabic words to impress his fellow PhD students in a seminary. What's this about anyway? Is we trying to put people into bondage? Are we trying to set people free? Are we trying to teach the Bible? Are we trying to teach the doctrines of man? What is sanctification? What is sanctification? Anytime there's godly movement in our lives, from here to here, that's what sanctification is. You weren't there yesterday, and guess what? You're there today. You weren't there two minutes ago, and guess what? You're here two seconds later. I don't throw that up, but you know what I'm saying. You weren't there before, and now you're here. That's sanctification. Who cares? Maybe every day of every, maybe every waking moment, or every day you go get your coffee. Let's just play a little scenario. Every day you get your coffee, the same jackass cuts you off as you're crossing the road. He doesn't stop. You know you have a right of way. He cuts you off and then flips you off. Right? And what do you do? Right? Pop one off because you haven't had your coffee yet. Right? And you're weak and you're pathetic. Right? And then one day you come out, you know, like, oh, you know what? I'm going to pray for him. That's sanctification. You didn't flip him off anymore. You didn't stumble like you have for 20 years. You didn't stumble anymore. You went back home and prayed for him. That's what sanctification is. Can we just get beyond this? This isn't about anything but being honest and open with God. 
What do you think God wants for your life? Do you re- does he really care if you have 15,000 new vocabulary words to talk over, over some biblical uh, tea party? I don't know. What, is, what do you think he wants out of you? He wants you on a treadmill? So you can pretend to be sanctified? Look at me, I'm sanctified. This is what he wants from us? No, he says, I'm going to change you if you let me. Just get the hell out of the way. Excuse my French. Just get out of the way. That's sanctification. When you get out of the way, guess what? My power is going to work wonders in your life. And as I've taught this many times in the pulpit, so much of our work, so much of sanctification, if DJ was here, he'd be like, you know, doing his thing. Oh, you know. So much of sanctification is scraping away, is losing self, the remnants, the vestiges of the self-life. That's sanctification. Because when we lose ourselves, guess what? He has more to work with. He has more throughway. You know, it's like us standing in the aisle, and he's trying to, like, grace us out. And, you know, we're clogging the aisle. And he's like, will you just get the heck out of the way so I can move you a little bit faster? Because when I move you faster, it brings glory to me. And that's why I left you down there, to bring glory to me. Not you. You know, some people stand like this with an S, with a cape. I'll save you. He's like, you're only trying to bring glory to yourself. That's not sanctification at all. That's literally just the opposite. That's you trying to sanctify yourself for yourself by yourself. Self-sanctification, self-justification, self-righteousness. Sound like a religion? You got it. That's exactly what religion is. Anytime there's godly movement in our lives under the power of the Word and the Spirit, we may rightly say that it is a part of our sanctification. I'm out of time, so we have to end there. But I need you to, I need you to chew on this some more. It's already been a couple of weeks. Keep chewing on it. Keep thinking about it. Let it be encouraging to you. Think about the apostles. Get behind me, Satan! Oh, man, what? You just said I was like the rock. You know, what's up? Now I, gotta, now I get this in my head? Yeah, you're not perfect. You're going you're gonna to deny me three times before the night's up. Never happened. <laughs> this is the apostle Peter. But then he didn't do that anymore, presumably, right? He went on to, to, to lead the early church and the other apostles. Mr. Foot in the mouthitis himself. If God can use that, then he can use you. All Peter needed to do was get out of his own way. Isn't that what he said when he said, get behind me, Satan? He said, where was his Peter's mind? He says, your mind is on the, the thoughts of men. Your mind is on earthly things. You're trying to be a hero. You're trying to be my savior. I'm the Savior. i got to go to the cross. And you're trying to save me? Get behind me, Satan. It's the same paradigm that we do. I'm going to save whatever. Me, somebody else, whatever. And God's like, no, I save. It's my power that saves. It's my power that sanctifies. We have to remember that. It's from faith to faith. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege to gather together as family to, to break bread in the way that matters most on the very bread of life, the Word of God. 
Father, we ask for traveling mercies as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.